It's so good for us to be here together, not just because of how much we enjoy it, not just because we think it is, but because the Lord has told us it's good for us to be together. We have a unique opportunity to stir one another up to love and good works when we meet together this way. I'm so grateful that our assembly is nearly full today. Uh, We're looking at a new meeting place. What a blessing to have that issue that we need a bigger space, especially with COVID restrictions. It's hard to spread out with so many people coming in, but we're grateful that you're here. What a blessing it is to us. We're thankful for so many that are online. If you're listening in later, uh, we're grateful for your giving us an opportunity to share with you these uh, truths that come from God's word. We're sharing in his gospel message. Today we're looking in the book of Leviticus, and that does not mean we're going to shortchange the gospel. God has been preaching his gospel since the beginning of his revelation, since his plan was meted out, was laid out before uh, man was even made. And so he's been revealing his plan to us, uh, even from the Old Testament. If you'll open with me in Leviticus chapter 23, in our daily readings together as a congregation, for those of us who are, who are sharing in this together, we've been going through the book of Leviticus. We've just entered into the book of Numbers. Before we started Leviticus a few weeks ago, I uh, told you that it's one of my favorite books to teach because hardly anybody actually reads it. It's a great book. It's God's revelation to us. It ought to be something that we appreciate, but it is an unusual kind of book for us. It goes through these detailed descriptions of how to take apart an animal that's being offered up on the altar. And then some detailed descriptions of laws that no longer pertain to us as a people because they pertain to the Jewish nation as they were coming out of Egyptian slavery and learning how to deal with this God. They were learning who he was and who they were, learning how to deal with one another in holy ways. And so there's a lot in these descriptions in the book of Leviticus that simply seem outdated or archaic. But there are principles that are being laid down. This is the meat of the teaching. This is the book, as I pointed out, that the children would read first. Because it's the book of holiness. And so as we read through Leviticus, we may ask, what does this book have to do with Christians? And I hope that as you've read through Leviticus this month, you've learned that, yes, it has a lot to do with Christians. And today we'll be talking about specifically in these first four verses, the feasts of the Lord. In Luke's version, it said appointed times, and that is a legitimate translation of this word. But we'll see that it's used over and over. My version's the New King James. Other versions will have this word as feasts. And so we'll talk about these feasts of the Lord that we see in these first four chapters here. I encourage you to open up your Bible with me. We'll spend most of our time in Leviticus 23 today, but uh, that's the only way we can really be certain that we're speaking the truth is when we see what God has actually said. So we see here that these are appointed times. Very generically, God calls them that. Speak to the children of Israel, say to them, my version, the feasts of the Lord, but his version, these appointed times that are of the Lord, I want you to proclaim them as holy convocations. These are my appointed times. Well, think about that for just a moment. God, again, is revealing a little bit about who he is. He is the Lord, and he is the one then that has the right to determine the times that his people should gather. He's the one that has the right to determine the reason for their gatherings, and he's the one that has the right to determine what they ought to be bringing to these gatherings. These are his appointed times, and we'll see that over and over through the language. These are his feasts. But what's amazing is that the holy God of Israel has invited people to come to his feast. He invited certainly his own people, his own nation to come. But what we'll find out is that he was really inviting all nations to come to his feast. He was desirous that all should be able to come before him. But we see this over and over in the language here. These are the feasts of the Lord or the appointed times of the Lord. He says they're my feasts. This is the Sabbath of the Lord we'll see several times. It's the Lord's Passover. It's a feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. 
It's a feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And repeatedly, he says, bring your offerings before the Lord or an offering to the Lord. The Lord is the focus of these meetings together. The Lord is also the focus, obviously, of our meeting together. When we come together on the first of the week, we're here to worship Him. We do get a great blessing out of this fellowship we have together. God designed it that way. We're to build one another up. That's what He designed for Israel as well. Really, from the garden, He didn't leave Adam alone. He gave Adam a helper to encourage and build him up as he was serving God there in the garden. God has always provided for his people to be together, and he's expecting his people to be together as we come together to worship him. But he's the focus. It's unfortunate that so many religions are focused on the person, on the individual. We were talking about that some in the book of Acts today as they were going out teaching, and they were teaching about the Lord and teaching to love Christ. But so often the focus today is on seeker-friendly religion. You want to be something that someone's going to come and, oh, they're going to come back for more of that. Well, if they're desirous of coming for the Lord and you're teaching about the Lord, we want them to come back for Him. But we're not going to make concessions to make people feel comfortable so they'll just keep coming back because they like what we're offering. They ought to like what we're offering because what we're teaching in truth is what brings them out of their sins and what sanctifies them to the holy God. And if they don't like that, then they're probably not going to like being in His presence. God called people to his feast because he wanted them to be there. He invited people to be with him. It's interesting how God lines out his feast. We see some vestiges of this mentioned in the New Testament when Paul talks in both Colossians and Galatians about not being judged. He says, talks about these feasts that were daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, and seasonal. They were feasts all the time before God. There were these daily feasts as they offered up. We'll look at the uh, Numbers version there, Numbers 28, if you'll open with me there. I just want to read to you about this particular feast. This is the daily feast. It's also mentioned in Exodus 29. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings made by fire is a sweet aroma to me. You shall be careful to offer me at their appointed time. That's that same word that's translated sometimes as, as this feast. You shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day, as a regular burnt offering. Verse 4, the one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. And so he describes this daily feast. There was always going to be food on the altar of God. And they would be offering this day by day. Then he calls the Sabbath day a Sabbath of solemn rest. It's interesting that in the, the commandments, he did not allow them to cook on the Sabbath. The food that they would have prepared would just be there. They had prepared it the night before. And sort of the concept behind that is, God has prepared their food for them for the Sabbath. When they go to, to eat their food, it's something God has just already left there for them. It's a reminder of the manna, actually, in Exodus chapter 16. When God told them not to go seek it on the Sabbath, but to gather twice as much on, on the Friday night, that God would make it available for them on Friday, so they would have that then on the Sabbath. God is providing for them. On the first of their months, at the new moons, Numbers chapter 10 and verse 10, they would have this feast of trumpets where they would blow the trumpets at the beginning of the month as they began to count the months out. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year, Exodus chapter 23 says, and it lines out the three times that all the males in Israel had to come before the Lord for these great feasts. In the seventh year, we talked about this recently, there shall be a Sabbath. It's a, a whole year of resting and feasting before the Lord. And then there was the 50th year, the counting of seven Sabbath years. The 50th year was a consecration to the Lord as well. It was a feast or a festal year. So God has just overwhelmed the people 
with all of these invitations to come into his presence, to be a part of these feasts that were his feasts, and yet they were the guests of honor that were coming in. Now, he called these feasts holy convocations. He said sort of generically that these would be just these appointed times, these appointed feasts he would set up. But he says specifically, you shall proclaim them to be holy convocations. I'm inviting you. That's the idea of a convocation. But it's for a holy purpose. And so this is not just any old kind of feast, any old kind of festival. This is not banqueting. This is not something that's prohibited in the New Testament and also really in the Old. It's not just gathering together to have any, any old kind of carnal party, but it's a feast that's got a holy purpose before the Lord. And really, in order to participate fully, the person who is invited must come prepared, must be holy, and must be set apart. We see this in the language. Let's look at the Passover feast in Exodus chapter 12. When God first reveals to Israel the details about the Passover, as he's about to bring them out of Egypt, he gives them this interesting detail in verses 43 through 49. Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 through 49. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord... Let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. And one law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. There's a lot of couched imagery in here, this idea of not breaking any bones, of eating it in one house, of one law. All of this imagery has to deal with holiness. There's no strangers, no one who's outside of the covenant with Israel is allowed to eat it. But if they want to eat of it, let them become as one of you. Let them become circumcised. Let them learn and keep your laws, and then they can eat it. And really, in that, God is saying, I want them to partake, but I want them to be prepared. I want them to be holy. I want them to come as one of mine and not as some outsider. And then they can come and partake with you. I want them here. Now, there were also some regulations. We're not going to read all of those for the eating of the offerings. This is among the Israelites that only the ones who could eat from the meat that had been put on the altar were those who were cleansed, those who were holy before God. Other ones couldn't eat because if you ate from that meat that was on the altar that had become holy from contact with God's altar, then you would be put to death. God would see to it that you didn't participate anymore. The appointed times had a holy purpose, and it was necessary to be set apart and holy to partake in those. What we see in all of this is that the holy God, the living God, the God of heaven, not some minor deity, not some minor worshipped idol, the God, the holy God of heaven, was sanctifying his people for fellowship with him. That is the purpose of these laws. That's the purpose of all this setting apart. Consider the language in Exodus chapter 19 as he's brought them out of Egypt. He's, he's teaching them of this covenant, and he simply says, so simple, Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. If you will obey, then I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I will separate you from all the peoples. Really, everyone on earth is mine, God says, but I want you to be special. I want to separate you. I want to sanctify. I want to make you holy so that you can have a relationship with me. 
And so if you will obey me, then that will happen. God is sanctifying this people, separating them, so they can have fellowship with him. But what's amazing about that, really, is that God is sanctifying them by fellowship with him. It's the nearer that they draw. It's the more they obey. It's in the practice of God's revealed will that they become holy. Because the more they do these things that distinguish them and set them apart from the Gentiles, the more they become like the people of God that he desires. We see that in, these, in the language, in the book of Leviticus. We've seen it several times up to this reading in Leviticus 23. But look with me at, at chapter 11. This is the ominous chapter on the food laws. And there's a reason. God doesn't speak about their health. God doesn't speak about his concern about eating unclean meats in the sense that they're unsanitary. They're not what he has lined out for them to eat. And he spells it out very clearly. 11, uh, Leviticus 11, verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. He says the same thing in chapter 19 and verse 2, and then at the end of chapter 20. That they will be holy because he is holy, and it's through these laws that he's making them holy. Now I think that helps us to understand as we're reading the New Testament, as we're reading the Old Testament, it's not just the knowledge of these laws that makes someone holy. It's not the theologian. It's not the monastic who sits and meditates on God's word that's the holy person. It's the one who practices what God has revealed. That's the one who becomes holy. Because we are set apart by the doing of what God has said. We're set apart from those who aren't doing what God has said in, in the simplest way to say it. And God then, by these laws, makes us into something different. We'll see that in Romans chapter 12. As we lay ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice, that makes for the transforming and renewing of our minds. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. As we give ourselves to God, as we obey his will, he changes us into something else, into, something, into someone holy that can be with him in holy presence. So he made these appointed times with a holy purpose, and he prepared a holy people to partake with him. But what we need to understand about these appointed times, about these feasts, is that they're a compulsory invitation. How, does, how is it an invitation if he makes you come? <laughs> well, this is the holy God we're speaking about. This is the God who wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be in his presence. And so he sends out an invitation, but what he says is, for those who don't want to come, it's impossible for you to become holy. <laughs> it's impossible for you to become the people I want if you don't want to be in my presence. Now, that seems logical. But it's amazing to me that as God is regularly calling people to himself daily, weekly, monthly, seasonally, yearly, calling people to himself, his own people, that some would see that as a burden. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is really talking about the gospel here. And again, as I mentioned, the gospel has been revealed even in this Old Testament. In these feasts that God was calling his people to, some saw that as a burden. Jesus lets that very clear to us in Luke chapter 14. I'll begin reading at verse 16. Here he is, he's at the table with some uh, rulers of the synagogue, and they're talking about what a blessing it's going to be when those get to sit with God at his table in the kingdom of God, and they don't realize they're some of the ones who are going to miss out on this, because they don't really understand what it means to have this blessing of sitting at the table in the kingdom of God, because they would rather do other things. So Jesus says this parable to them in, in Luke 14, starting at verse 16. He said to them, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. 
The first said to him, I've bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I, I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house being angry said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. <laughs> Think about that for just a moment. Think about the weight of Jesus saying these words here. God had made all this preparation. And he called these people who said they wanted to be in his presence. He said, come in then and feast with me. And they said, well, not right now. I mean, we love you and all, but not right now. I've just got this, these yoke of oxen I have to go test. I mean, I know you put on this big party and you spent all this time preparing, but I've got to test these oxen. I just got married. I mean, surely you can understand that. They seem like legitimate reasons. But what they're saying is not, yes, someday I want to come to your feast. They're saying, no, I don't want to come to your feast right now. <laughs> and so often that's where we are in our approach to God. Someday I just really want to get it together. <laughs> Someday I just really want to serve God. I mean, not right now. <laughs> right now I've got my career to think about. Right now I've got my school to think about. Right now I've got to take care of my family. How are you going to take care of career and school and family without God? <laughs> How are you going to do that? Not well. <laughs> not properly. Certainly not in a holy way. God himself has been providing for these feasts in Israel. And Jesus is talking to Israelites. They understand this concept. And yet, here's the ones who are saying, oh, it's going to be so great someday in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, you're missing out right now. The king was sitting at their table, and they were rejecting him. They were belittling him in the context, the things he was talking about. They were belittling him. And he says, you know, the ones who are really invited are going to miss out. I love the language in Deuteronomy that shows how God was providing for these feasts. He was giving them what they needed to bring. What a beautiful thing. Let's go to Deuteronomy 16. Let's consider this. God calls you to a feast. Normally we go to a feast or a party and we'll take a gift or we'll bring a dish or something. God says, oh, and let me, let me tell you, you go stop by and pick it up here. It's already been paid for. You just, just bring it with you. <laughs> I've already given it to you. You show up with gifts that... Actually, you didn't provide. They were already provided for you. Deuteronomy 16, verses 15 through 17. Seven days you shall keep a secret, uh, sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you may surely rejoice. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of, of the Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. God put all this in their hands. Now we hear often about the tithes in the Old Testament. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy 14. I want you to see one of the purposes for the tithes, which is going to knock your socks off if you've never seen this before. Deuteronomy 14, in my Bible, it's on the same page. It's on the, on the opposite page here that we just read. Starting at verse 22. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, 
of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But if the journey is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money. Take the money in your hand, go to the place which the Lord your God chooses, and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires. You shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice you and your household. <laughs> you thought the tithes were just being given away? God says, set aside 10%. Keep doing this. And then when we have this big feast, you'll have something to bring with you already. God made provision so that they could bring their tithes and eat of those so none would appear before God empty-handed at the feast. <laughs> what an amazing, amazing blessing. God prepared all the feasts. He prepared them for the feast, and he filled their hands so nobody would be empty-handed or empty-stomached at his feast. Just an amazing blessing. And yet some people saw that as burdensome. I have to set aside a tithe so I can have a feast with it later? <laughs> I've got to be giving all this stuff to God so he can give it back to me abundantly? I don't think so. This is my stuff. I make the decisions around here. How many people act that way in their hearts? How many people act that way in their lives? While they're giving lip service to God, and yet they want to do things their own way. And they're missing out on the feast that he's called them to. Participation in these feasts was not something to be optional. And yet what a blessing that it was. If they would go and submit themselves to God's will, they would be in fellowship <coughs> directly with him and with his people. All the males were called for these three annual feasts. We just read that. And amazingly, as we see here in Leviticus chapter 23, look at verse 3 and then at verses 7 and 8. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. This is a weekly feast. You shall do no work on it. It's the Sabbath of the Lord and all your dwellings. Then on verse, uh, in verses 7 and 8, talking about the Passover, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. In other words, God gave them the day off. <laughs> he excused them from their work so that they would come to his feast. <laughs> what more could he have done <laughs> as he prepared them prepared the feast, gave them all they needed and said, and I'm not going to char charge you with working that day. Take the day off. Come be with me. <laughs> That's a burden. <laughs> and yet so many people saw that as a burden. The majority of these days, as we've seen, was to be feasts. <laughs> that word feast is a joyous celebration that involves food. It's where we get our word festival from the same root in English. A festival is a feastival. It's where you go to eat and, and gather together. The year that we got married, ours was the, my wife and I got married first among our group of peers uh, in Brazil that year. And we had her, her aunt is a, uh, worked at a buffet, was a buffet uh, coordinator. And so she gave us our food and everything as, as her wedding present to us. And it was great. It was wonderful. But later on in the year, we would go to these weddings and sometimes the food would be late coming out and we'd hear people complaining. Well, they don't have any food at this wedding. We've come to this wedding. We're expecting a feast, and there's not any food. Well, finally, the food would come, and everybody would be happy. But you don't go to a wedding expecting not to have food. It's a joyous occasion. It's a celebration, and we eat together in celebrations. It's what we do, and it's what God had called them to do, to celebrate together with him. So often, God's blessings are described in terms of food. If you look through the entire Bible, think about this. The first blessings on man, as you're reading through in Genesis 1, God makes man told him to be fruitful and multiply. And then he says, and I've given you every green herb to eat 
and all the animals I've given them, all the green herbs and every fruit from the trees you can eat. He starts telling them about food. <laughs> that great commandment in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, where we have the, the negative commandment about uh, not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He tells them, you may freely eat. <laughs> he begins his blessing with food. <laughs> his description of the promised land is a place that, that has milk and honey flowing. <laughs> and he keeps telling them about their grain, their new wine, and their oil over and over and over again. That's all through the Old Testament. It's all through the Old Testament, uh, through all of the promises. He keeps reminding them of the grain, the new wine, and the oil, these foodstuffs that he's giving them. And he uses that as he goes through the entire Old Testament with them. So God uh, describes their food as part of the blessing. Think about how often Jesus used feasts as a description of his fellowship with God and of man's fellowship with God. We saw one already there in uh, Luke chapter uh, 16. Matthew 22 is a parallel to that. He's talking about this feast that God is calling the people to come to, and they're making these excuses and saying they can't come. His first miracle was done at a wedding feast, at a wedding in Cana. In the book of John, in fact, all through the book, I'm not going to even break all that down. I've got a bunch of verses up here for you if you're reading along at home or if you want to look these up later, I'll make these available to you. But almost at every chapter, at least every two chapters, it says, and this feast of the Jews was coming, and then there was this feast, and here was the Passover, and here was the dedication. And always Jesus is teaching something that has to do with that feast that he's come to fulfill in himself and in the gospel. Jesus used feast as a backdrop all through the book of John. In fact, that's what you'll see most in the book of John. As you see these miracles Jesus did, there's a feast going on. The people are gathered together. That's what Jesus took advantage of. It's a description of fellowship with God. In fact, only one of these meetings is specifically a fast as we go through this text here, and that's the Day of Atonement. They're told in chapter 23, verse 27, the tenth day of this seventh month shall be a day of atonement, shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. That phrase, afflict your souls, if we look at Isaiah chapter 58, we see where they're complaining about their fasts. They said, we afflict our souls and the Lord doesn't hear us. And God says, that's not the fast I asked for. <laughs> a fast and afflicting your souls is a, is a phrase that's often interchanged there. And so this Day of Atonement was a day they were supposed to afflict their souls. In fact, back the first time the Day of Atonement was mentioned in all of its detail, back in Leviticus chapter 16, he explained very clearly, verses 29 and 30, this is a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. There's a reminder of their sins on that day specifically, and they are to mourn their sins and not to eat. They are to afflict their souls. One day. In fact, it's in the seventh month, which is a month of feasts. It's their Sabbath month. It begins on the first day, then on the tenth day, then they have one on the fifteenth day. But that day on the tenth, right in the middle, that's their day of atonement. It's the day that they're going to fast in the middle of all these feasts. And so it really brings a stark contrast to the pointer behind this particular uh, gathering, this particular uh, appointed time. I believe what we see in all of this is that God wants a holy people to have fellowship with, to feast with. In John chapter 4, verse 23, as Jesus is talking to that Samaritan woman at the well, he very clearly talks about God's desire, not only for her, but for all men. We were talking about this even today in the book of Acts. It's not God's desire that any should perish. John chapter 4, verse 23, 
The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. <laughs> he calls us all to fellowship with him. He desires that. Take a look for just a moment at the setting of all of these prepared places we come across in the Bible. The setting of Eden, for example. The word Eden means paradise. And so you've got food in abundance. You've got lush greenery in abundance. You've got these rivers in abundance. And so Adam and Eve, God placed in paradise. It says in chapter 3, verse 8, that he came in the cool of the evening to walk with them, to have fellowship with them, and yet they hid from him because of their sin. God had come to have fellowship, to have feasting with his creation. In Genesis chapter 47, we see that Israel goes into Egypt. They're there for more than 400 years. But what we're told about, uh, about the place they were, Genesis 47 verses 5 and 6, as Pharaoh received them on Joseph's behalf, Pharaoh spoke to Joseph saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. If you know of any competent men among them, make them the herdsmen over all my livestock. It was a blessing as they went in. Now, eventually they became slaves in Egypt, but they went in receiving the best of the land. God had given them that. We already looked at the idea of the promised land being a land that flows with milk and honey. And uh, when they went to, uh, to spy out the land in the book of Numbers, they, they named one of the towns Eskol, or one of the regions Eskol, which is this huge cluster of grapes. It's a, the Hebrew word for cluster. It was so big they had to have several men to carry it. The food was in abundance. We already mentioned in John chapter 2 that, uh, that Jesus began his earthly ministry at a wedding feast. And in Luke chapter 22, Jesus' ministry ends at the Passover feast. That's when he becomes the sacrifice for us. Feasts all through the Bible, reminding us of this desire that God has for fellowship with us. In fact, we just participated this morning in the memorial feast that Jesus left for us. It's a love feast. Jude verse 12, uh, when he's speaking really in a negative way, He's speaking of the, uh, the false teachers that have come in among them. In Jude, verse 12, he calls it specifically a love feast. Some are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. But it's a love feast. He's talking about their gathering together and uh, perhaps in particular the Lord's Supper. Certainly Paul calls it a feast in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. I think it's interesting the language he uses here. Again, in a negative context, he speaks of the blessing of being together with God. He says, purge out the old leaven, one who is in sin and continuing in sin. Purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And as I began speaking this morning, I talked about the blessing of our being together, this feasting that we have in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Although the language is not specific to feasting, the idea certainly is. And that's what we have as we gather together today. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together these appointed times, 
as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. <laughs> what a blessing that the holy God desires a holy people to feast with him. I pray that as you're reading through the book of Leviticus, you can certainly see how it has relevance to us. That these principles that God laid out, showing his heart toward his people, that he wanted them to be holy, how they play out to us. Consider the fact that Jesus said in John chapter 14 that in his father's house are many mansions and he went to prepare a place. It's a mansion. It's a place for feasting. He went to prepare a place for us. He left his word, John chapter 17, to sanctify those who would come to him. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. He said, I don't pray just for the apostles who will be doing that, but for all those who will come to you through the word that they're preaching. And the book of Revelation makes it abundantly clear that God is calling us to his wedding feast. We'll finish with this image. It's one of the last images that the Bible actually holds for us, is of this feast that God is calling us to partake in. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And then in chapter 22, verse 17, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. God desires you to come before him and to feast with him. But he would make you holy that you can do that. And is it hard to believe that some, even perhaps some of us, would find that as a burden? I know I ought to be together on the first of the week with the saints, but I've got school, but I've got work, but I've got family, but I've got things that I want to do. I'm not saying, maybe later, Lord. I'm saying, no, Lord, not right now. What a terrible thing to think about all that God has gone through preparing this feast. Is Leviticus for Christians? It absolutely is for Christians. We have a feast that's been prepared and set before us. The question is, are we consecrated so that we can celebrate this feast with him? Have we been listening to his word? Have we been obeying his word? Have we allowed his word to change us into the kind of people that are right for fellowship with him and the kind of people that then bring forth the fruit of sanctification, that we can continue in fellowship with him? If you're not a Christian, you can't attend this feast. If you're not a Christian, you may be present, as there were those strangers present in Israel, but they weren't allowed to partake of the feast. They were onlookers. We would love for you not just to be a bystander and an onlooker, we would love for you to be sanctified by the word of God. What are you waiting for? If we can encourage you to take the steps to come forward and let God cleanse you, if you would confess that Jesus is the son of God, if you'd be willing to repent of your sins and have those washed away in the waters of baptism, you can start a new life, sanctified to participate fully in his feast this very day. If you're already a Christian and you've let other things sway you, keep you from participating fully in God's feast, 
He desires you. He's made that so clear by sending his son as the Passover feast, as the Passover lamb, to bring you near to him. If we can help you in some way to make that decision, to come before the Lord and feast with him, please won't you join us. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage your decision.